Hi everyone, I'm John Offit, I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Timo, the award-winning visual planning app designed to support routine and time management. The app empowers users to schedule visual routines that work. Users say that Timo can actually help reduce stress and support executive function. Head to your app store and type T-I-I-M-O into the search bar to learn more. Today we're going to talk about how it feels to be diagnosed with autism later in life. Although autism is predominantly diagnosed in childhood, increasing numbers of adults are finding out that they too have autism. This issue of a later life diagnosis was brought to light a few years ago after my guest went public with his experiences. I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Packham. Extraordinarily creative and prolific, Chris has led a remarkable life. He's gained recognition as a naturalist, television presenter, writer, photographer, conservationist, campaigner and filmmaker. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. No worries. Can I just say, I used to watch you on the Really Wild show um, back in the 90s, so it's a bit of a childhood dream that I get to speak to you today. No, you've made me feel very old now. <laughs> the Really Wild show is, 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 is deep in a very distant past, but I do have fond, fond memories of it. Brilliant. So, Chris, uh, 2020, a bit of an extraordinary year. How has it been for you? Uh, mixed. And I think uh, at times I've been extraordinarily happy. Um, and at other times, like everyone else, I've been extremely fearful of the, the situation. I have a, a vulnerable elderly father, and obviously with my sister and, and, and partner, stepdaughter, we've spent a lot of time protecting him and making sure that he gets through this crisis. So that's been quite stressful. Um, dealing with someone who's quite critically ill and 87 years old, living alone, has been... Um, quite sort of taxing. Uh, on the other hand, um, during the first lockdown and the spring and the summer, I was isolated in a very beautiful part of the country. I, I like my own company. Um, I was there with my stepdaughter. We got on really well, but we still spent quite a bit of time just doing our own things. And it afforded me an opportunity that I haven't had since my teenage years, which was to chronologically, day by day, immerse myself totally in nature in, in, in the world around me. And uh, I never thought I'd have that opportunity again. And I have to say, I was thinking about it this morning, actually, as I was trudging through the woods. And I was thinking that I, I perversely, I, I, I had a remarkable spring and, 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 and certainly, you know, I put, managed to protect myself from some of the more insidious aspects of this um, crisis by reconnecting with nature in a way that I never thought I'd be able to do again. Well, that's really good to hear. And there's definitely a lot of pluses, as you say, about reconnecting with nature with this lockdown. So that's definitely a, a good thing. So, Chris, I wonder if you could just talk to me a bit about growing up as a, you know, a working class kid going to school and just talk us through kind of your early life. Well, yes, I was born in 1961 and uh, I lived on the uh, outside of Southampton. I, I very quickly manifest a, a, an interest in natural history in our small garden. And uh, I was obsessive as a child. I would, you know, switch from one uh, focus of interest in terms of, a, you know, a, I don't know, an animal of some kind or group of animals and, and then immediately jump onto the next one. Uh, oh, hold on, this is a group, of, a, a group of animals having something to say now. So that's Sid and Nancy, <laughs> the black miniature poodles. Nice. And, um, yeah, nice. my companions. Of course, I, I, I say that we're spending time alone. I, I wasn't. I was constantly with them, and, um, and that's a really important part of my relationship. I think it's the first time I've had a, a dog on my the Different Minds podcast series, which is great. Well, you've got a dog and a grey squirrel, actually, because it's that, that outside the window that's exciting them to, to comment at this point in time. That's brilliant. Nancy, Nancy, the squirrel's not listening. Thank you. <laughs> Right. Um, so, yes, going back to my youth. So, I mean, I have very good memories from about the age of four onwards, and, and they are principally based around my fascination with the natural world. I, I went to um, a, a standard, what was then an infant school, a junior school, and I went then to a large comprehensive school before going on to college and university. 
And to be honest with you, up until the time I got to the later years of the junior school, so I suppose I'm talking about sort of 11, 10, 11, 12, um, I was not really that aware that I might have been too different from my peers. I seemed to be able to integrate quite easily with them and, and I played the games with them and I played a similar role in the classroom. But it was at that point where I noticed that they were intolerant of some of my behaviours. Maybe those behaviours were developing further. I, I, I can't remember. But certainly by the time I got to comprehensive school, so by then I was 12 or 13, I was beginning to struggle with people of my own age. You identified with the, the punk rock movement. Can you just tell us a bit why why was that? By the time I got to 16, I was in a really bad place. Um, I, 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 I was being excluded and bullied. And I, you know, I didn't know why. I had no comprehension of why this was the case. And I was very angry and, and, and very upset about that. And initially, of course, I was blaming myself. I had an intense self-loathing. It had to be my fault because I was the single outsider. There was a lot of them and only one of me and I didn't fit. So therefore, you know, in, in simple early teen logic, it had to be my fault. Um, but I did get extremely uh, angry about it. And then punk rock came along and, and punk rock gave me the ability to physically identify myself as, as someone different. So when you, in, you've got to cast your mind back to the to the mid 70s, you know, dyeing your hair black and spiky, wearing white trousers and and brothel creepers and a studded leather jacket was not what it is now. It, it was a far more outrageous social statement. Um, I would walk down the road and people would cross the road to avoid passing me on the pavement. Um, there was quite an adverse reaction, but all of that was grist to my mill. I, you know, I, I, I was clearly different. I was being told that by everyone. And here was a means of me saying, okay, I accept that. I project that to the world by the way that I appear. And also I exclude you. So rather than being excluded, I was able to take control of the situation and exclude the world from me because they just left me alone, basically. Mm, yeah. So, Chris, obviously, you've had an amazing career in television. How did you how did you end up working in TV? Purely accidentally, um, I had intended to stay in the academic system, so I went on to university, studied zoology, and I was about to embark on my PhD. But I I, I had struggled th throughout university as well, again with people of my own age, and my tactic then, my management system, if you like, was to completely avoid them. So most of the time that I was at university, I would go and. I would say, well, certainly for the first couple of years, 20 pence, please, twice a day to a bus conductor. And I wouldn't speak to anyone for the remainder of the time. I diligently attended all of the lectures. I missed one in three years um, because I was ill and I still regret that. I wished I dragged myself to it so that my record was complete. But um, and, I, and I enjoyed being at university and I got on really well with all of the lecturers and, and everyone else there. But I, I couldn't get on with people my own age. Anyway, and I, I left and I guess, again, I was still confused, still very angry in my early 20s. I didn't understand what was going on in, with, with my life. And um, so I decided not to do the PhD. And then just purely by accident, I met someone who was a wildlife cameraman and I started working for him part time and I learned how to make films and then I started making my own and then I got to know some people at the BBC and, and then I lost a job that was quite important to me at the time and I needed some money. So I went for an audition to The Really Wild Show and I, when I spoke to my sister about the potential, we were walking through a park in Southampton, Hobbins Park. I can see it in my mind now. I've got quite an intense memory. And she said to me, Chris, you've got to do this job. She said, you've spent years and years boring you know, me, mum and dad talking endlessly about wildlife. If there's one thing you can do in the world is talk endlessly about wildlife with so much enthusiasm that other people, uh, you know, listen. So that was it. And and it was it was purely by accident. It wasn't something that I planned at all. Amazing. Amazing. So, Chris, I want to talk about your autism diagnosis then, which you, you received in your 40s. How did that come about? And did you always have suspicions before? Uh, yes. Well, I, I didn't get suspicions really until the early 90s. And I'd always had partners who were involved in some way with the medical profession. They were nurses and doctors and these sorts of things. Um, and at that point, I think um, autism was being talked about within the medical profession more. It was coming to a greater uh, awareness there. Um, 
And one of my partners said to me, she'd been learning about it. And she said, you know, you tick so many of these boxes. And I, I found a letter of a little while ago that I'd, I'd written and not posted to someone. And I'd run through a series of criteria, which broadly, uh, you know, defined autistic traits. And, you know, and, and I was writing in the letter how I felt an affinity with that, or that was the way that I perceived things or thought about things. So that was early 90s. But it wasn't until later, as you say, that I got the, the diagnosis. And that came after a period of intense depression um, where I was extraordinarily unhappy. And I, I went for some psychotherapy. I, I was close to killing myself on a couple of occasions and I didn't want to go back to that position. And I thought I finally got to find a, a mechanism of staying alive and, and, and maybe psychotherapy, which I'd shunned and eschewed before as, 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 a, as a means of help when I've been very, very depressed, um, might help. And, and I, so I, I did that for two years. Um, at the time, in all honesty, I didn't think it was helping me that much. It certainly wasn't doing me any harm, but it was only with the benefit of hindsight that, that I recognized that it was doing me some good. And, and through those conversations, the, the topics of um, autisms and Asperger's uh, came to the fore. And it was only at the end of that uh, period of, of therapy that I got my diagnosis. So how did it make you feel, your diagnosis? Was it a huge relief to you? Do you know what? It's interesting. It, it, it wasn't. I mean, I, I think I'd already figured it out, as I say, and, and certainly people that knew me had kind of figured it out. Um, so it didn't come as a great surprise and a, and a shock. By that stage, far more was, was known about the condition by people like myself and yourself. It was, it was, net, it was by then, uh, we have to accept, in the public domain, not just the medical profession, but in the public domain. Um, so it didn't come as a shock to me at, at all. And, it, and in terms of a, the impact of it, initially very little. Um, but what was interesting is that I had a conversation with my, my, my ex, Megan's mother. We still, you know, we get, get, get on very amiably. Um, and she said to me, what's interesting, she said, is that when you got your diagnosis, nothing much happened. But now you're a very different person. And, and she says that basically over a period of time, I've come to accept some of the limitations and enjoy some of the benefits far more openly. And one thing that she is certain about is that all of the masking that I was doing, and bear in mind, I've been doing it for 40 years, you know, what's at least part of that time. Um, then she said that has, that has gradually just disappeared and, and you've taken far more control over your life and, and, and you're far more accepting of, of who you are and, and what you are than, than you were before that diagnosis. So it wasn't an instantaneous relaxion, uh, uh, reaction. It, it appears to have been something that's happened over the intervening period. What support did you receive after your diagnosis, Chris? Uh, I didn't seek any support. Um, I had already evolved a management system which allowed me to do pretty much what I needed to do socially and professionally. Where my management system was failing was when I became uh, mentally ill through depression. Um, and, and after the period of therapy, I was, well, that drew to a close because I think I'd got to the point where I, if I got myself into trouble again, I would know how to get out of it. Yeah. So at that point, I didn't see the need to seek any more support. What I did do was interact far more openly with, for want of a better word, but it is in inverted commas, um, the autistic community. So I started talking to other people about their experiences. And, and I suppose in a way that was a means of support because sharing ideas and experiences and, and uh, with other people can be reaffirming and reassuring. So that was definitely a benefit. So why did you decide to go public with it when you made your BBC TV programme Asperger's and Me in 2017? Well, I, I'd written a book initially just for my own um, needs. I have to do creative things. And at that point, I, was, I couldn't take photographs. Um, I was too busy doing other things. And, and if I'm not making something individually, I do get very frustrated pretty quickly. I can be a team player, but I have to originate aspects of my, you know, that, that, that are motivated by my own personality. So I started writing a book and I, I, I wrote a book and I had it like on a stick, not under the bed, quite literally, but on a stick for a, 
18 months for, for, for two years. And then eventually I showed it to someone. They said, well, you've got to publish this. And, and you know, I said, well, I didn't write it to be published. You know, I just wrote it as an exercise for me to do, you know, do something mentally active. Um, so I published it and it, it uh, fingers in the sparkle jar. And, um, and although I, di I didn't refer directly to um, autism in the book, it, I mean, it's obvious, you know, it's very obvious. Um, and off the back of that, um, I started to have conversations with the BBC and they were quite keen to see if we could explore the idea of a programme. And I thought about it for some time and we batted it around. And I, I was very clear that if we were to make a programme, then it would have to be it would have to offer hope to people, not hopelessness. And it would also have to celebrate the positive aspects of, in my case, what they used to call Asperger's. I still use the term. I know it's now allegedly, allegedly redundant, but I, I use it because I've been using it for some time. And on that, Chris, you know, as you say, I wondered how you identify with Asperger's, given, as you say, it was eliminated as a separate diagnosis in 2013 in, in DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And, and it was folded into the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder, as you know. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think if, if you've been living with taxonomy for some time it can actually become useful to you and, and and some of the definitions that were used to describe Asperger's do encompass a, 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 a community of people where there's quite a pronounced commonality of traits so I think it is quite helpful for us those that share those traits now whether the moniker is is, is still required or not is from my perspective ambiguous when I talk to other people about Asperger's, they know what type of autism that I'm talking about. So from that point of view, I still find it useful. Although I'd also like to be technically correct. So I, that's why I mentioned that I was aware of the fact that the term is now in, has been dis discontinued. But whatever, you know. Can we just talk about some of the signs and symptoms of autism? And if I just kind of run through a few, and if you can just tell me if, if, you, if, that, if you can relate to that. The obvious one is the kind of heightened sensitivity. So things like being super sensitive to bright lights and noise and even like textures of foods. Can you relate to that? Uh, yeah, I'm very visually orientated. So it's the visual side of things for me. Uh, texture is, is, is another thing and, and certainly food texture. I, I don't eat fruit. I'm vegan and I don't eat fruit. Uh, um, it's quite hard. And, and I, I've got, the, I've, I've sat in front of a fruit bowl, paradoxically, and yeah. an apple and two oranges in it. Now I can pick them up. I'm, you know, I, I can. I don't want to. I don't like touching them. Um, and I think there's a strong association with the fact that I was forced to eat fruit as a child because it was good for me, and undoubtedly it was um, in terms of its nutritional content. But so psychologically, being forced to eat something that you, it was the texture when it was in my mouth, I didn't like it, or when I was, you know, holding it. So I, I, I try to avoid those sorts of things. So texture is one thing, but I have to say, uh, when it comes to, to acoustics, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm neither accomplished nor overtly sensitive to those sorts of things. But if with me, it's all about smell, touch and vision. And, and I'm also very smell sensitive. So I, I, I found certain situations are really challenging. Like if you go to the fruit and veg part of a supermarket, supermarkets are a ghastly environment for me anyway, because of the visual complexity. Uh, and the noise and the light and all the people and everything else. It's just not good. I, I, I avoid them uh, you know, completely if I can. But imagine going into the section where all the fruit and veg are. Now, I can smell every one of those different fruits and veg, but that's a cocktail of smells that really shouldn't be together. Some of those smells are so contrasting it's that they're jarring. Imagine... Imagine you go into a room and you've got a bright purple wall alongside a bright yellow or green one. Now, you know, I quite like that sort of visual, you know, sort of that challenge. But a lot of people would find that visually jarring. But that's what I feel when it comes to smells. The, the benefit from my point of view is that having a heightened sense of smell means that it's great when you're into wildlife because I can smell animals and I can identify them by their smells. And, you know, and I, I can smell, you know, my dogs have a smell, but they have a range of different smells and that smell changes. I can smell when they've been sleeping. I can smell when all sorts of things that they've been doing just by their smell. I know that sounds probably sounds a bit bonkers to people, but, but, but so 
you know, so for me, the visual side of things has been a real asset because I have um, the ability to take in a lot of visual information very quickly um, and, and retain that information. Uh, so I can remember scenes, photographs, paintings, anything really, um, from a visual point of view. And equally, the, 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 the smell side of things is, is a real asset in the natural world where we're a visually orientated organism. Many other you know, organisms, particularly many other um, mammals that we interact with, well, dogs, for instance, they don't live in a world of sight. They live in a world of smell. Um, and so being able to know a tiny, tiny part of their world and explore that is, is an enormous asset. So you mentioned touch then, Chris. So I've heard before that sometimes people with Asperger's, and obviously everyone's different, no autistic person is the same, but but uh, I've heard that some Asperger's people will like cut labels out of clothes because they're super sensitive to the, to the, feel, the sensation of, of that touching their skin. Yeah, I, I hate all that. <laughs> I just really dislike all of those sorts of things, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of a... When it comes to cutting labels out of clothes, I do cut labels out of clothes, but also that for me then makes them incomplete. So I've got this real problem, you know, do I cut the label out and therefore, you know, the, the, sh the shirt, if you like, is then no longer complete, but the label is can be intensely irritating. So again, there's sort of two couple of things going on there. But yeah, mainly I have to say that the texture thing can be food related. It's It's tactile there are a lot of things i don't need to touch and i don't like being touched either that's another thing you know i think i'm not sure that's directly related to that but you know one of the most you know forgive me i don't mean it in, a, in an unpleasant way but one of the most offensive things that can happen to me if a, is a, if a stranger comes up and touches me particularly if i don't know it's going to happen um, because that is that's a that, that's for me. I, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, but it's a, it's almost like a form of assault, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, in your TV program on the BBC, Asperger's and Me, you also talked about kind of organising your clothes in your wardrobe, and uh, you're quite kind of um, kind of systematic when it comes to that. Would that be fair to say? Very, very systematic about not just my clothes, but everything. Everything has an order, and and I think I I understand why this is. It's about control. Because what I obviously began to realise when I, when I had to deal with my autism without knowing it was autism and without understanding any of those aspects of it, because this was the mid-1970s, yeah. um, I recognised that in order for me to feel more comfortable and less anxious, I had to take control. So obviously the, the minute I left home, I could then decide when I ate my breakfast, when I ate dinner, if I ate dinner, um, and, and what time I did what and, and and, and so on and so forth. And, and and I hate to say it because my parents are great people, but, you know, uh, making my own decisions about very mundane everyday things was an enormous step forward. And then making decisions about my shaping my environment in terms of my emotional, physical, temporal, intellectual, all, all of those environments, as, as soon as I could take control of them, the world started to get better. And, and I think that I shaped places where I could go and, and with the benefit of hindsight, you know, I would, you know, they were just escapes. That's where I was, and they were invariably outside, you know, but they were places that I could go. Now, in an indoor environment, in my space, I want to be comfortable in that space. And therefore, I need to control it. And therefore, having order and taxonomy is part and parcel of that. And, and obviously, sharing my space with um, two dogs who leave their toys chaotically is is it's not a challenge because that's they're their toys sharing my space with my stepdaughter um you know she has her spaces she doesn't she doesn't interact with my spaces in a way like many people would because she knows that if she comes into my office and starts moving things around or moving things on so on and so forth that's that's not going to work you know? yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah dogs uh we can, yeah more, more squirrels on the phone <laughs> that's all right what about like repetition and routine you talked about it there so for example do you have the same thing for breakfast every day yep I have the same thing for breakfast i have to i i, I wear the same clothes in the house i have a, a a uniform um it's changed over time because eventually the clothes decay but every time i come into the house i will put the same Trout. If I'm not going out again, I'll put the same trousers and top on, and and that's my indoor uniform. And if I get up in the morning and I'm not going out, that's what I, 
I put on. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Every day I have exactly the same thing for breakfast. Over a period of time, it, it, I used to eat muesli in the morning. Yeah. I'm, I'm now on a slice of toast. But it's a very particular type of bread, a very particular spread, and, and, and everything about it is identical. When I'm on my own, I spend quite a bit of time, time you know, living on my own. Um, I, I eat the same thing every evening. I, I will, I will go to the, you know, the, the local shop, and 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 I will get basically ten of the same type of food packet, whatever it happens to be, and then I'll just eat the same thing because. And would they be like bland tasting foods, or or would you not particularly? No, yeah. no, it's just whatever I'm into at the time, what's convenient, what's, you know, uh, um, as I say, I'm vegan, so uh, I, the sky's not the limit. I, there's a, there's, I, ha- I have to choose based around that dietary choice as well. But I don't, obviously I don't get away with that when Charlotte or, or Megan, <laughs> they, they, they wouldn't tolerate it. So then I do eat other things, but, you know, but when I'm on my own, no, that's, that's, that's it. What about like the way that you make a cup of tea or the way that you wash the pots or do, do, do normal things in the house. Is, is there a, can you accept that other people might have a different way of doing things to you? Of course, but that doesn't mean that I change the way that I do things. Yeah. Because again, you know, I, I have a process. Most of my, you know, day to day existence runs through a series of processes and those processes are, have been evolved to maximize the efficiency optimize you know the time they're all about you know completing a task as neatly and as efficiently as possible you know they and and i'm punishing self-punishing if i'm not optimal in the things that i do i'm the sort of person that if you go upstairs and you've left your glasses downstairs and you have to go back down to get them it's i'm not saying it's a mountain but it's certainly a molehill so i just don't do those sorts of things i I have orders and processes to do things which have been very carefully considered, like the cataloguing of my clothes in the wardrobe or my books on my library shelf or, or, or everything else, the paints in my art drawers. You know, they're all there. Um, and it's not nothing about it is random. What about eye contact? Uh, yeah, it's something I had to teach myself. And... Um, it was when I started doing the Really Wild show, um, I'd spent my time at university not interacting with people. I'd, I'd had so much conflict by the time I, you know, I'd got to that age, 18, 19, going to university, that I couldn't deal with that conflict anymore. I was, it, again, I, I, was in, I was getting very chronically depressed. So I decided that the best way to, to avoid the conflict was to avoid its source. So I just didn't interact with people. Well, then I'd get a job. Well, I've got to work in a team with people that I don't know. So it was really challenging. And, and some of the very simple day-to-day aspects of my type of autism, which can infuriate other people, and, and as a child and as, as a teenager had clearly infuriated, infuriated to the, them to the point they didn't want anything to do with me, um, I had to get a handle on those. So I've got copies of really wild show scripts, and on the back of them, there's a list of two things to do. Yeah. And I would make a list of things that I needed to do. Don't interrupt people when they're talking, even if you know what they're going to say, which yeah. is really boring. <laughs> Listening to people when you've already figured out what they're going to say is, is quite a challenge. Yeah. Um, um, don't uh, you know, allow other people to say things. You know, uh, Don't be didactic all, all, all the time. Make eye contact with people that are, are, to- are talking to you. Um, I, yeah, there was, I just mapped the things and then every day I'd come back and I'd mark myself out of 10 for how well I think I'd, I'd done that, how I'd done that day. So again, it was quite a punishing regime, but over a period of time, you know, I'd, I'd, then what I would find myself doing is that I'd be having a conversation with someone, I'd be looking at the table, but then I would think, actually, don't look at the table, look at them. So I would look at them and you know, it was quite hard, but... <laughs> And under, in stressful situations, the really weird thing is now that in stressful situations which aren't aggressive, in, in aggressive situations, I understand the need to command people's attention by looking at them. So in any form of sort of aggressive encounter, I will, I mean, that's a, a method and I have a mission. Therefore, I will look at people. But in a, in a situation where uh, there's a conflict situation and it's not an aggressive one, I, I, even now I find myself incapable of looking at, at people. And, 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 and also in other stressful situations, when Charlotte and I met, and it was about 
12 years ago, 13 years ago now, she said to me, um, I thought I'd met the weirdest person because I, I was with them for six months and they didn't look at me once. Because I, I so, you know, like, like Charlotte and, and I, I wanted to, you know, develop a relationship with her, but I was so intimidated by that and it was so pressurised that I found, I found it really, really difficult to look at her, despite the fact I really liked the way she looked. But, but, but in that situation, even now as an adult, it, it's still sometimes a struggle. So you talk about repetition and routine there, Chris, but what would happen then if um, obviously life throws up things at the last minute sometimes and sometimes someone might ask you to go to the theatre on a Friday night when you you normally maybe go shopping or do something else. How do you handle kind of last minute changes? Right, so prior to my diagnosis and that evolution of acceptance of who I am, I would have Gone, I would never have gone to the theatre because I don't like the theatre. So let's say cinema. I would have gone to the cinema, but I wouldn't have wanted to do it. I would have thought to myself, I, I have to do this as part of the relationship with the person who's invited me. I have to do it because it might be a rewarding... Exp- I, I'd come up with excuses as to why I would go to the cinema. Um, and, I, and I would go there and I was probably chronically anxious. I, I, I was not that distressed. Otherwise, I was simply wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't go to a supermarket on a Friday night. Don't invite me out for one of those because I'm not going in there <laughs> even now. So but the, the key thing is that um, now I just say, I'm terribly sorry, I don't want to do that. You know, and, and, they, and, and, and that's why, you know, I don't maintain what people would probably consider to be normal social relationships. I have people that I see, but I don't just see them for the sake of seeing them and making some small talk. I don't have time for that. I did in the past because I thought that was, that was the part of that masking. That was part of like me integrating into that world in that way. But, but now I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I, I don't, I, there were people who I enjoy learning from and I enjoy being with, but I don't just, you know, pop, pop in to see them yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just unthinkable frankly yeah. I, you know i know it again probably sounds a bit balmy but i just it, there's no point yeah yeah so would it be fair to say that you rather be on your own than than to socialize chris well no i enjoy you know being with megan and, yeah. and once or twice a year i have friends who are artists and 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 they, they're great company one one man in particular i actually i, I normally see him at Christmas, maybe once or two or three times during the year. And, and I actually find myself quite looking forward to going to see him. Um, he, he's quite a, an, an interesting in, individual as, as, it, as it stands. And he's a genius. And, and, and I, you know, I'm always in awe of his presence, as it were, you know, and, and, and what, he da- what he does. But that's quite an isolated thing. And I'm very comfortable with my own company uh, when I'm with the dogs, of course, which are a massive part of my life. Um, so... I think it's just that, and, and and of course you have to. I have. I must be clear that when I'm working, I'm working in a team, and very often I'm away from home under normal circumstances. Obviously not this year, but I, I would be away from home, and therefore we we would eat together in in the evening, and and and, and so forth. So I socialise then, and. And, and, and most of, I mean, some of the environments I, I don't go to, if they're all going to a noisy pub, I, I don't go, obviously. But, but if they're just going to sit down and have a, a, a meal in, in, in the evening and the environment isn't unsuitable, then I, I'll, I'll do that. I see that as part of, part of my job. Yeah. So, Chris, I just want to go back to before you said that you obviously like to control your environment at your at home. Would you say then that um, OCD is closely related to autism? I'm not sure whether it's closely related. I think a lot of people, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I, I, I do have compulsive behaviours. As I mentioned, you know, I have obsessive behaviours. Um, they've often benefited me, to be honest with you, I, I think more than harmed. Um, but I think it might manifest itself in a way which appears to be obsessive and compulsive. But in, in fact, it's probably more about sculpting a familiar, comfortable environment, which you, you know intimately, and therefore you can relax in. I know you mentioned on previous podcasts that sometimes you might have a tendency to to go off on one. I think that was your exact words, uh, maybe without realising uh, the, the other person isn't responding. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it still happens all the time. 
<laughs> I mean, I just sometimes I just I, I, I realise that after about normally after about twenty minutes, I look up and I just I see Megan or or Charlotte completely glazed over um, because I've started talking about I don't know Gettysburg um, and you know and because I'm into it or I started thinking about it and I've just gone off on one and 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 and, and it's just basically like the tap opens and I need to tell everyone well whoever's there everything I know and what excites me about the Battle of Gettysburg and and and, and those or whatever it is at the time it can be anything so that and and then again I have to, that's something that I constantly monitor when I'm working but again I do you know some of the meetings when we're putting the watches together I I, I have to sort of kick myself or, or Michaela Strappen who I've worked with for 25 years sometimes now would just sort of nudge me and I'll think oh yeah Oh, oh no! I've just done, I've just done five minutes on the sex life of the bank vault, and not that many people are interested at this point. You know. <laughs> so, what about like misconceptions when it comes to autism? Then, because often people, sometimes people say that people with autism can't understand the emotion of others. What would you say to that? That's not true. Um, I think that there's a misconception around empathy and our ability to perceive emotion. I, th- I think there are certain things that even now I, I, I'm, I'm not very good at. So, for instance, Sh- Charlotte and Megan co- have uh, uh, quite a lot of fun telling me things which are improbable um, and, and untrue. But because it's Charlotte and Megan telling me them, I, it doesn't compute to me that they would tell me something which is improbable and untrue. So, yeah. that, and then, you know, they'll tell me something and I'll be really sort of confused by it. And then I'll look at them and they'll just laugh. And, you, and they, you know, and it's like, only you would ever believe that, Chris, you know. And, and it's the context of the way that it's being told. So I can't read easily what they're, what they're, what, what, you know, that, that being, when they're manipulating me like that. But the other thing is that, there are certain things which I think people in those sorts of relationships expect and then normally manifest things like sympathy. Well, I'm not, I can manifest sympathy, but I, and, and, and there might be a percentage of that, which is innate, but there are a lot of times when I don't think sympathy is a useful tool to, 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 to employ. And, and, and I certainly don't need any sympathy. It does me no good. If I fall over and I cut my leg, I don't need anyone saying, oh, that's terrible. I need someone to take me to hospital and get it stitched up. You know, yeah. no amount of all oh, that's terrible is going to help my bleeding leg. So, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying it here. But so yeah. I think in that and every now and again, you know, people have to stop me and say, Chris, that, just read this situation. Think about this situation it's slightly differently um, because that so that I don't think that's a direct lack of empathy. I think that's an inability to perceive the context of a particular situation immediately. Because very often afterwards, I'll think, okay, why was that person upset? Why was that person? And then I think, oh, I know why it was. It was because I was responding like that. It's just sometimes it requires too much thought, but it's not not there at all. And and in terms of emotion, um, that. I'm, uh, you know, essentially uh, can be a very uh, emotionally led person. You know, I, 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 I you know, I, I don't live in a world of grey. I live in a world of black and white. I, I either love something or I dislike something. You know, um, and so for, if I love something, I, and I, I can't love it ninety nine percent. I can only love it a hundred percent. And therefore, I'm very. We are all, you know, very giving of our emotion. And, and that again, unfortunately, in, in you know, instigates a vulnerability. When you when you give that much emotion to another human, it, it, you're making yourself vulnerable. That's why probably I have quite strong relationships with other animals because when I give a hundred percent of my love to Sid and Nancy, um, they never fail me. What about theory of mind deficit? The ability to to see something from someone else's point of view. Can you relate to that? I think as an adult, you just get better at it. I think from a, when I was a child, again, thinking back to, to, to some of the sort of sources of conflict within the family and other social situations, um, they, were in, they were a, man, a, a manifestation of that. My mother used to say I was the most tactless person that she could ever imagine because I would say things to people that were entirely inappropriate. They weren't. They, they were just the truth. And I told them the truth as I saw it at that point in time. But 
and that got but obviously caused a lot of trouble um so um, i think it was but as you get older um it, you know in simple terms again you just learn to bite your tongue you think those things but you just put a, you just rein it in um until and i suppose the way you don't rein it is is with your friends and family because you expect them to be able to accept you you know so sometimes I, I still have the unfortunate capacity to upset Charlotte and she will look at me and say, you just can't say that, Chris. You cannot say that. And I think, well, if I can't say it to you, who can I say it to? Um, but, and, and, it, and so I think that as you get older, that, that definitely gets better. You get a handle on that. We're not foolish, are we? And we learn by our mistakes. But I think that as a child, yes, that was definitely a problem. So you've already touched on it, but has your autism brought any challenges then when it comes to to relationships? Oh, yeah, innumerable um, challenges. Um, It would have made those early relationships really difficult. And I think that, I mean, perhaps it's telling that I went out with nurses, um, you know, people who cared for other people, people who had heightened empathy, who wanted to look after people and make them well. And, and they were probably therefore more tolerant of my um, some of some of the traits which w- were very difficult to live with. Um, so I, I think you know, and outside of those personal relationships, I think a lot of the professional relationships would have been challenged, um, you know, early on. Despite the fact that I was, you know, smart enough, as I say, by the time I got to my mid twenties. I realised that if I was to, you know, to pursue the career that I wanted to do at that time and do the things that I wanted to do, I had a very, you know, um, de- you know, sort of defined idea about what I wanted to achieve. Then I would uh, uh, to make that work. And bear in mind, we're task focused, very task focused. And the task was getting on with the people in the Really Wild Show team. That was a job. It was a job. It was a very important job. And I wanted to do it a hundred percent well. I didn't want to get on with them ninety-nine percent and upset them one percent. I wanted to do it a hundred percent, like everything else that, that we do, we want to do a hundred percent. So, you know, I think that um I, I think that having that sort of task centric attitude can be really really beneficial. Um, because it does allow you you to develop those self-management techniques that will get you through of course it's quite tiring because you're doing two jobs at once one one you're working on the really wild show and two at the same time you're working at working on the really wild show (laughs) but i mean that was a long time ago and 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 a lot of the things that i did then have become habitual and i do them habitually now so i don't even think about them yeah yeah so chris just, just talking about relationships still then in terms of like the black and white thinking that you you mentioned earlier and the fact there's no gray area do you think maybe that sometimes gives you an ability to kind of cut off from relationships and kind of move on quite quickly with, because there is it's either one thing or the other there is no gray area about it i think so i think that when i make up my mind about something um unless there's a change in circumstances and i i, I like to you know change my mind i like to be proved wrong or to learn something new which changes my mind i'm excited by that um but unless that happens then i make up my mind yeah so when relationships are terminated they are invariably terminal i'm not a vengeful person i I don't i don't you know if they've gone sour i don't need to blame anyone there's no point life's too short move on um but i do move on and, and 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 that's it the relationship ends and and again i think that's been confusing for people because they say hold on a minute you, you were like best buddies you you, you do all of this and then and now you, you you never even talk what 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 you know it's impossible for that to happen but it isn't <laughs> you know it's just what what happens yeah really interesting i want to talk about your your tv career i mean i guess it's working in tv is a notoriously hectic industry i mean you're really busy workloads constant changes to the schedule i mean how do you how do you cope in that environment um again i think you learn to think about it in advance so you know if if i perceive that there's going to be a challenging situation. One of the things that where, where it was difficult as a young person was again not being in control. You're in your bedroom. Your mum comes in. She says, "We're going out." Well, you didn't know you were going out. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know whether it's going to be hot and cold. Um, there were so many instantaneously instantaneous unknowns that is it 
<laughs> you don't go, you have a war. So, but, but now if I think there's going to be a challenging environment, I, I just think about it in advance and I plan how I'm going to deal with that mentally. Now, a lot of that, has, as I've already said, has become a habit. So, it, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not still at the stage where I'm writing things on the back of, you know, spring watch scripts, um, boxes to tick because a lot of that has become habit. But every now and again, you get caught out. There's no, there's no question about that. You, you fail to think about something which is going to you know, pop up in front of you. And, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in a, in a challenging situation. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. So what, what role do you think your Asperger's has played in what you've achieved in your career? So what are the positives? There are an enormous number of positives. Um, I think the, the task, let's go back to the sort of some of the things that we've been talking about already. Um, let's do it in order. So firstly, the heightened sensitivity, you know, uh, the, 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 my ability to see intense detail instantaneously in the natural world allows me to elucidate that detail and understand it. Um, it, it, it also allows me to remember it. And I, uh, and I have a, a very good memory. And that means that if I read something um, about something that I'm interested in, I will retain that knowledge. And that's useful when I'm talking to people on TV, because if they ask me a question about some sex life at the bank bowl, then I, I, I can remember what I read about that in a scientific paper, you know, 10 years ago, and it, and it will come out. And it will come out. So that so that's useful. Uh, and um, so I think those sensory things and the pattern formation when it comes on the visual side of things um, is good. I think the taxonomy is good. I think that if you if you put putting things in order and you understand uh, the, the, how order orders work, then that can be a, a really useful thing. I think the task orientated um, thing is, is equally as is, is important because I always say, you know, if you want your floor swept, I'm, I'm your best guy to do that, uh, you know, because I will firstly find exactly the right tool for the surface of your floor. And then I will come up with a method of sweeping that floor, which will be the quickest and most efficient. And when I finish the job, there will not be a single piece of dust on your floor, because if there's a single piece of dust left on your floor, the job isn't done. It's not swept. And so from that point of view, that makes us a perfectionist, really. And, and stri- we don't achieve it, of course. There's always a piece of dust. But, you know, as we strive for perfection, we just work incredibly hard, you know. Yeah. And so... so you've got really high standards then, Chris, in terms of the perfectionist side of you. Yeah, and I employ those professionally. You know, if someone... Every job that I do and every subdivision of that job, I am trying to do it to the 100% of my ability at that given point in time and space. So, uh, you know, if the job is incomplete and we've been doing it for 14 hours and it's freezing cold and pouring with rain, I'm still there. I'm not going to go and get in the car or go back to the hotel or or, or say I've had enough of this, I'm off home. That can't, that that, that just can't happen. I know it sounds, it's not that it, it just can't. It's just—it's really weird, but it just can't happen. So, from that point of view, you know, I, I imagine that makes me an asset to work with because I'm just going to strive to do the very best that I can do um, yeah. all of the time. I imagine you've got a strong sense of justice as well, Chris. Yeah, that's uh, again that goes back to childhood. Uh, it's a, a, a sense of justice. And, 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 a, and a loathing of injustice. And I think it's the, the loathing of injustice that motivates a, a majority of my campaigning work. You know, I don't like people getting away with things which are harmful, and in my case, harmful to, the, to, to wildlife or the natural world. And, and when they are getting away with them, either because they're doing them maliciously or they're doing them through ignorance, then that's something that I cannot tolerate and therefore i will you know campaign again with a hundred percent of energy to try and put an end to it could you tell us about your love of animals and how that might have helped you cope obviously you mentioned your kestrel and your dogs wonder if you could just tell us a bit about that chris i've always had very intense relationships with other species of animal and i think it's that giving thing um the unconditional love that you get in return um you know, is again, it's that reliability. Um, you know, I know that every time that I get home, it, uh, Sid and Nancy will greet me, and you know, and they'll 
lie on my bed and, 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 you know, and they reciprocate entirely the love that I give them. And, and they bring me joy. I, I, you know, I used to watch the kestrel flying. I, I, I watched them running this morning, you know, and it just puts a smile on my face. I, you know, I know it's a very simple, fundamental thing, but I just love them being happy. And I know that I can make them happy by just taking them for a walk in the woods. Now, to make a human happy... Um, it often takes more than a walk in the woods, actually. It requires quite a lot of, an enormous amount of, 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 of effort. And even sometimes you can't always make them happy, even if you gave them everything they wanted, because at that particular point in time, their world is so much more complex that your ability to transform it is, is incapacitated and you, and you fail. But that doesn't, that's never the case with Sid and Nancy. I can make them happy all the time and as soon as I do it makes me happy and so that I think is maybe that underlies part of the reasons that I've had those intense relationships with 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 animals like that the downside of course is that when the relationships end um, it's very very difficult to deal with because of the intensity and the commitment and 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 well the commitment is 100%. I'm 100% devoted to their health and, and uh, welfare and happiness all, all of the time, all of the time. So what would you say to people that say, well, aren't we all a little bit autistic? You know, um, yeah, what would you say to that? Well, I think I see traits in, in a lot of people who, who would never be diagnosed. Um, I think there's a lot of commonality with those traits, and I see them not just in people that I meet, but I, I, I identify them in people that have long gone. Um, you know, and I think well, that, that that sort of manifestation of the way that they react to the world, artist maybe, scientist, and things like that, indicates that they may have had some of those the, those traits. So I think that's certainly the case. I think it's just when you you've got in, in th- you know, like a multi-dimensional hypervolume, as they call them. So it's like a three-dimensional um, sort of uh, uh, set of traits that come together to form in a particular way. It's then that we call it autism. I think also as the science progresses, we'll have a greater understanding of how people, how autism manifests itself, what leads to its origination, uh, the genetical component of that the, the the environmental component of that and and again that will probably give us a better understanding of how some people have you know many of the traits and they're quite tightly packed together um, whereas others might have one or two leanings and they're more widely spaced apart yeah it's interesting because there's a big discussion around whether is autism actually a disability and why does it matter whether it is or not? And I guess that you could say there's a fight between those who define autism as a medical condition and those who see it as a mere difference. Yes, it's, it's challenging because, um, you know, Greta Thunberg has described her Asperger's um, as uh, a superpower. Um, I describe mine as a gift but sometimes when you open it, you don't get what you want. Um, I think that you've got to acknowledge the fact that, yes, there are aspects of your personality um, that, that, you know, give you the capacity to do things that other people maybe can't, but that you, you have to acknowledge the, you know, the incapacity too. And, and, and for, with my type of autism, those are the social things, all of the things that we've discussed today. But of course, on other parts of the the, the autistic, autistic spectrum, you know, uh, disorder, as it were, um, there are people who are disabled by their autism um, to a greater degree than I am. And so therefore, and, and, and there's no line dividing the two. It's as fuzzy, fuzzy as the spectrum itself, um, you know. And, and, and again, everyone has their own, uh, I suppose, definition of what is disabling, you know. Some people might say that, you know, the social problems that I have are disabling. Um, other people would not. Other people would see them as, as something which is, perhaps they might consider them to be relatively trivial. So I think, again, there we have to entertain a real tolerance and, 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 to, and try and develop an understanding of other people's perspectives on, on this, um, because that's why it's so difficult when it comes to grouping autistic people together, because it manifests itself in such a, an extraordinary uh, number of, of ways. 
It's really interesting that because some people might say that the concept of neurodiversity is dividing the autism community, and some people say it's bringing it closer together. Because, as you as you as you know, neurodiversity is a viewpoint that brain differences are normal rather than deficits. That the spectrum is quite quite diverse, as you say, and 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 some people say it's difficult to put everyone on the same spectrum. It doesn't make any sense. I know. This is something that I think requires a, a lot of thought and creative conversation um, because it is becoming more divisive and that isn't helpful because I share an affinity for people who have different types of autism uh, than I have or it manifests in a different way and, and I, I still see them as part of my community. But they may not be as close as those that we might say have Asperger's but they are still there and I think just going back to, you know, the, the neurodiversity we're, we're physically diverse we've got we're different heights we're different colors we've got different eye colors you know there's a benefit biologically to being physically diverse you know people with good eyesight well you know that that's going to be beneficial for their outlook for things um, and and so certainly during our evolution you know those physical differences between a skin color meant that we could live in different parts of the world um you know, we developed uh, immunities in different parts of the world um, to, to different types of, of, of pathogens. So all of that physical diversity was an enormous asset. Why wouldn't neurodiversity equally be an asset? And I think that having a species having flexibility, flexibility, plasticity in the neurological component of, of, of all of that, the members of that species has to be advantageous. There's absolutely no doubt about that. We, we are programmed to be mentally different because there will be certain situations where people who are different in one way will prosper. And that is essential for evolution. And we've got to remember as much as we sometimes you know, try hard to forget, we are still animals, we are still evolving. Um, and, and, and that's part and parcel of a biological process that we cannot stop. So I think that's there's a very good reason for neurodiversity to exist. Biologically, it makes perfect, well, it's the, the categorical sense. Yeah. So what, what do you think needs to change then in society? What, what can we do to, to better understand each other and, and our differences? Well, I think that's it. It's the word understanding. I, I, we don't want to be tolerated. Um, we, we just want to be understood because very often the changes that you know, we require for society or individuals to make are, are n almost non-existent. And the benefits to us are enormous in terms of how we progress through our lives and the quality of that life and how productive that life is. And of course, the spin-off is that if we have more productive lives, then society has a more productive life. We add something to society. And, and one of the things that led me to make the Asperger's and Me film was, you know, I just remembered sitting in my bedroom every night reading depressing 19th century French poetry at the age of about 14. And, you know, and slowly, slowly, you know, closing the world down till it got blacker and blacker and blacker. And there was no light at the end of any tunnel. There was no tunnel. And I still fear that there are young autistic people out there who are not given the ability to see hope. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make that program. I wanted to be able to say to them, look, it's the most challenging and difficult period. It, it, it can get better. It should get better more quickly now in a world which better understands autism, which should have, um, you know, uh, support frameworks in place for you to be able to use, which should have better education for your, your, your friends, your family, your employers, and, and all of those things. And I think that we have the capacity to make enormous changes even now. We're not doing it because we're not investing in it. But having said that, I think more and more employers, let's take employers as a, an example, more and more employers are, are adapting their workspaces, their working processes, um, you know, to, to suit people with autism or who have autistic traits because they recognise the benefit to, to their business essential. And so that's, that's, that's progress. And I think that, you know what it's like, it's, things tend to sort of take a long time to get going and then they cascade. But... I think we're beginning, I think we're, we're coming closer to that cascade because people are realising that autistic people have enormous skills and attributes. They have, they have 
you know, ways of seeing the world which are different and therefore beneficial, and they can instigate, you know, see changes in in art and science and politics and and, and everything else. Because one of the other things that we, you know, people always say, um, you know, they say it to me. They say the thing is, Chris, you you you, you know, you see things out of the box, you know, or, or you think things out of the box, but there isn't a box. That's the thing. There's no box. You know, I don't see a barrier to anything. I, I just see a, a distance that I'm trying to travel, whether I'm thinking about something or whether I'm making something. Um, so, again, I think that that has, has to be an asset in terms of progress. And, and, and a lot of people are beginning to realise that and therefore give autistic people the opportunity to exercise their, their skills by, by shaping their world so that they can be productive. Um, what what advice would you give, Chris, to anyone listening to this today? And maybe they're struggling themselves in terms of thinking they can really identify with what a lot of what you've said today. And they may be thinking, am I autistic and I'm not sure what to do next? I think um, the first thing is to say, you know, everyone puts themselves under a microscope. If you've got to that point where you're staring down the glass and you think that I've got enough autistic traits then if you're an adult, you should think about seeking a diagnosis because that may well help you in terms of accessing support and care and also help you as an individual because then you'll be able to address and accept perhaps some of those things that you've been fighting against. And if you're a young person, I think that you've got to realise that you know life will get better. It will get better because people around you will learn how to deal with you, um, how to understand you, um, and they will adapt. And I think, you know, you will learn uh, through, 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 through difficult times, you will learn how to make things easier. And so for me, life, as I said, it's gone through a series of steps whereby things have got better and easier and easier. I don't think the problem problems ever go away. They're always there underlying, but you're managing them. And if you can manage them to the extent that you can make meaningful progress, then the quality of your life will be enhanced and, and you'll be more fulfilled and you won't be depressed and suicidal. Actually, sometimes you might be quite happy with a smile on your face because your poodles are running through the woods. And, and at the end of the day, you know, that, that's what I need in my life. I just, I just need the freedom to be able to be alone in a wood with two dogs. It's not a big ask, is it? Yeah. It's not a big ask. Yeah. And so whatever that is for other people, probably not being alone in the woods with two poodles, to be quite honest with you, that's probably quite <laughs> niche. But whatever that is, you know, there is a, there is a very good chance that you can get to that point if, if, you, if you stick with it. And, and this next question, and I know you've been asked this question before, but but what if there was a way of taking away your autistic traits? Would you ever choose to be you know, normal in, 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 in exclamation marks? If you'd have asked me that age 14, when I'd just been beaten up physically and mentally at, at, at school, I, I would have said yes, there's no doubt about that, because I was confused and I didn't understand who I was and what I was and why. Um, but that would have been a mistake. Uh, I wouldn't change anything about myself. I don't like myself in any way, shape or form. I see continual faults and flaws in, in, in myself, but I constantly get up and try and make myself a better person. And, and, and over time, you know, that's what I hope I've been able to achieve. And, and the incapacities which my autism has given me have made my life difficult, sometimes almost disastrous. As I say, I've become seriously depressed and, 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 and suicidal. So it's been challenging. But then when, when it sparkles, it really, really sparkles. And it probably sparkles with an intensity that is greater than for many other people. When, 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 I, when I feel joy and euphoria, I, I, I can feel myself almost bursting. Yeah. Two final very quick questions, Chris, and, and this one's kind of leading on from the last one. So if you had the opportunity, what, what advice would you give your younger self? Well, I don't know. It would have been very hard to give. My, my younger self wouldn't have been listening. My younger self was in, in, in a really, really bad place. So it would have been hard to reach that younger self. 
no one else could reach reach him. My parents couldn't reach him. You know, the people that knew me either didn't want to or, or couldn't reach reach him. And and as I got older, even my my partners in the end couldn't couldn't reach me. So it was it was it would be really hard. I suppose if I could break down the door in, into the, into that younger self's mind, I would just say stick with it because every time you watch a full moon rise, every time you see a rainbow, every time you know something simple happens and 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 you smile, then it's been worth living another day. Yeah. And final question, um, what's your, we're going back to punk rock, what, what's your favourite record, Chris, and, and why Why is that? Uh, I quite, I, I like punk rock music, aside from just the movement, uh, because it's short and sharp and simple, um, and it's, 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 not, it's not challenging. But also, a lot of it was quite meaningful, it was very directed, mid-70s were a really difficult time for young people, high unemployment, strikes, um, you know, multiple governments, um, all, you know, all sorts of conflicts, Cold War going on, constant threat of nuclear oblivion, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so the, the, quite a lot of the songs, um, lyrics have real meaning. And, and my favourite, without a doubt, when it comes to the lyrics is um, Shout Above the Noise by Penetration. And, and, and that, that, those lyrics have been a, a mantra for me, you know, in, in, in my life. Uh, they've, 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 they've guided me and I, and I, and I continue, you know, conti- continually listen to them if I ever need any, um, you know, sort of re, reassurance that, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing the right thing and I, I need to work a bit harder. And a couple of years ago, I met Pauline Murray, who's the, the lady who, who, who wrote those uh, uh, lyrics and um, yeah, it was um, just just amazing, absolutely amazing. And this is really is the final last question, Chris. So, what what does being autistic mean to you? It means my life's been a lot more interesting, probably. Uh, not always better, sometimes worse, but I think that my life's always quite interesting. There's always something going on. Sometimes it's been brought about by the abilities that autism has given me and sometimes that's been brought about by the challenges so the roller coaster the ups and downs at the end of the day you've got to say at least they're interesting there'd be nothing 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 worse than not you know than being content and being comfortable i think um Aldous huxley said actual happiness is never grand and there's nothing as you know enthralling as a as a good fight against contentment i think that was from from brave new world and i've always thought that's the case you know i i don't like complacency and i don't like contentment but then i've never really had much of it so (laughs) it's not surprising chris thank you so much for your time today it's been an honor to have you on my podcast series thank you for being so honest and you're clearly a a role model for all of us and all that is left to say is just keep up the good work thank you i'll I'll try i'll I'll keep trying to aim to get that last piece of dust off the floor (laughs) thanks very much chris i really appreciate it cheers john 